up to the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. And as you're turning there, I want you to think back, maybe as recent as earlier this morning, about someone doing something to you or for you for which you are profoundly grateful and you'll never forget. I think every single one of us can probably come to um, a memory of that, of someone who said something or did something that just stuck and it really energized, motivated, or changed the course of your life. Um, I want to share one with you that I got. One of the biggest affirmations that I received um, a number of years ago was an anonymous letter, and I keep it in my files, um, and it had a CD with it that I found in my mailbox shortly after I believed I had received a call to vocational pastoral ministry. And it, it reads this. It says, Dear Aaron, I think that your life is a wonderful testimony in that you are responding to God's calling to the ministry with such enthusiasm. God has put it on my heart that you may need some quality tools in your tool belt as you pursue this calling. So I did some research on software, and I hope this helps you as you pursue God's will for your life. I have no doubt that if you haven't found something else by now, you, you will use this software well and to God's glory. And there's a few other things, and then they signed it with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly equipped to perform every good work. I was on cloud nine when I got that. And I don't tell you this to toot my own horn. This was grace, such a grace given to me. So that's what I want to ask you. What grace has been shown to you? Where has God shown you mercy? And, have you, and how have you responded when he did? Not if, when. Here in John chapter 12 is a major turning point in the gospel. And in fact, it's going to slow down pretty significantly because from here to almost the end of the book, we're looking at the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And as Jesus heads towards his own death in Jerusalem as the Lamb of God, he stops at Bethany, where he has shown a family an incredible grace, an incredible kindness. He, he raised their brother, Lazarus, from the dead. How did they respond and receive him? Well, that's where we're going to be today. So would you stand with me as we see worship? John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. You may have a seat. Jesus is worthy of lavish worship. This family has been shown grace and they lavishly worshipped Jesus. And it seems that some of their motivation is also, is also motivated by what Jesus has yet to do. And as we look at this passage today, we need to ask the question, how do we, here, lavishly worship? How do we express that Jesus is worthy? Well, firstly, worship flows from who we are. Firstly, we must be us to worship Jesus. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, verse 1, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. We must be us to worship Jesus. Martha was not Mary, who was not Lazarus, who was not either of them. They were each worshipers, and we each in this room and those listening to my voice are each worshipers. So what does it mean to be us and worship Jesus? First, it means to believe Jesus. I mean, look at what it says in verse 1. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. There's a little fact again. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. It's a dinner of honor. It's a dinner of expressing gratitude for him and what he has done. They had been shown who Jesus was through their sign of Lazarus being raised. And they believe him. It means to believe him. I have to say, when I put this together, we must be us to worship Jesus. I hesitated to say that we should be us. Because we live in a culture where people are applauded and encouraged toward complete and utter autonomy and independence of making themselves who they are. Being their own creators, as it were. Interestingly, that self-creation often looks like what's trendy and makes you a lot of money. But what do I know? And often self-justifies not submitting to the Lord. But what I mean by be us is this. Who we are is who God defines us to be. It's God who gives us the abilities we have. It's God who gives us the resources to exercise those abilities. And it's God who gets to say how we use our personalities, our talents, our bodies, our everything. And as we who trust in Jesus, who believe in him, are made more like Christ, who we are in Christ is more truly who we are. And all of us, us as us, is designed and supposed to be for the glory of God. To glorify God. 
And that's what this family is doing. They are honoring, worshiping, glorifying Jesus because they believed him. Being us to worship Jesus means we believe Jesus. Secondly, it means to serve him. There's two words, Martha served. (laughs) And you remember, because everybody seems to remember this, is that Martha was corrected one time when she was, quote, distracted with much serving in Luke 10.40. That doesn't happen here. Her heart was different here. She was not distracted. She was serving Jesus and those around her, not herself. Now, there are some of us who are wired this way, like a Martha. Some of you can make meals fit for an army and kings. (laughs) I'm not that person. Praise God for you. Some of you can make a space spick and span, not a shred of dust. You are wired to serve. You see something done and you you don't need to be asked. You just go and do it. There are people in the church who are gifted with the gift of service. But all of us are called to worship Jesus by serving him. We may not have the massive abilities that some do, but we are to serve the Lord with who we are and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he has given us for the building up of his body, the church. So it means to serve him. Thirdly, it means to be with him. Look where Lazarus was in verse 2. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. (laughs) What a great way to use the time with Jesus after you've been raised from the dead. (laughs) We so often equate worship with making plans, getting the job done, and go, go, go. Move forward, move forward, always advancing. And it is possible to worship the Lord Jesus Christ that way. And we should. But man, do we spin our wheels and shrivel our faith a lot when we don't spend time with the Lord whom we say we love. To spend time with him, listening to his word, talking with him in prayer is part of who we are as those who trust in Jesus Christ. That's part of our worship. We spend time with those we care about, those we love, those we want to be around. So it means to be with him. Fourthly, it means that we use what we have for him. And here we get to verse 3. Mary, who has spent time with Jesus, worships Jesus with what she has. Mary, therefore, given that Martha's serving, Lazarus is at the table, Mary, joining this, therefore took a pound, that's a lot, this is approximately 12 ounces, of expensive ointment made from pure nard from India and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. She uses what she has to worship Jesus. She uses the best of what she has. Judas says later in the passage that 
the perfume would have been could have been sold for 300 denarii a denarius being a day's wages in modern terms let's say $9 an hour which is the Nebraska's minimum wage make that 300 days at 40 hours a week that's $21,600 a $21,600 bottle of ointment right then poured over his feet. What is our best? Would we drop that kind of money at the feet of Jesus? What is our best? What is most valuable and precious to us? Something that we have? Our money, perhaps? Our relationships? Our time? Everything we have and are is the Lord's. So how are we using what we have, the best of what we have, for Him? That's what we need to ask ourselves. And what happens when we give everything gladly in worship to the Lord? Look at the end of verse 3 with me. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. When we worship Jesus with our lives, we carry what the Bible calls the aroma of Christ. And the church and the world around us, when we are living this way, cannot miss it. And let me just state it, lest you think this is a kind of a quick fix kind of thing. Having the aroma of Christ as a church does not come from some silver bullet church program or come overnight. This comes about by consistent, faithful disciple making of people in the church who are lavishly submitting themselves to the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When we are doing that, the house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We must be us to worship Jesus. But what makes that possible is that we're not worshiping us. Worship is not ultimately about us. It ought not to be. We don't serve ourselves, be with ourselves, use what we have for ourselves. We do as sinners. But as those who are in Christ, Worshiping Jesus requires humility. So how do we lavishly worship? Secondly, we must humble ourselves to worship Jesus. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he used to help himself being in charge of the money bag. But right before that, as we've already read, we see humble worship from Mary. So we're going to ask two questions. The first question is, what does humbling ourselves mean? It means to be at Jesus' feet. Verse 3 again, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
Mary is not only giving Jesus something extraordinarily precious. She is giving Jesus her servitude. She is, at, she is taking a servant's posture. She was not standing eye to eye. She was not over him. She was down at his feet. No self-respecting non-servant would stoop at someone's feet unless it's Mary at the feet of the Son of God. And it should be us at the feet of the Son of God too. And she even humbles herself further because it says she wiped his feet with her hair. That means she let down her hair, something that the women of that day did not do because it was a taboo. Loose women let down their hair. Unrestrained women let down their hair in those days. Well, an unrestrained woman was letting down her hair for the right reason. She was unrestrained in her worship for Jesus, in, in humbling herself. And Jesus received her humble worship, her forgetting herself and focusing only on Christ. To worship Jesus, you have to lay everything down. You have to lay down all your self-importance, all of your reputation, all of your pride, your station in life, all of your unwillingness to get your hands dirty in the kingdom of God. It means to be at his feet. And then we see a great contrast, which is the next question. What happens when we don't humble ourselves? We worship other masters. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, verse 24? He said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus said. See, Judas has the opportunity to worship Jesus with what he's been given. He's in charge of the money bag. He has the opportunity to steward it generously and wisely. But the very same place where he might have worshipped Jesus well turned into his devoted service to another master. And when someone worships Jesus like Mary did, when we are worshipping another master, another God, guess what happens? You get mad, get irritated. We might even start using religious reasons to justify our irritation rather than repent of our own sin. This money could have been given to the poor. What's that? You'll use or you'll pit one way of worshiping Jesus, being generous to the poor, against another way of worshiping Jesus, anointing him with fragrance for burial. And when we pit 
worship against worship for Jesus against worship for Jesus, we are not humbling ourselves. When we do not humble ourselves, our hearts further become humble, become hardened toward him. Because John notes about Judas, in parentheses, he says, he who was about to betray him. See, it didn't just, Judas's betrayal didn't just start off with just a <sighs> despising of Jesus. No, no. As I've heard it said, the road to adultery does not begin with a one-night stand. It begins a lot farther back. Here, he is hardening his heart against Jesus. He's not going to repent of the evil of worshiping money. He's not going to repent of the evil of worshiping himself because that's what he wanted to use the money for. He's going to do what the chief priests and Pharisees had committed that they were going to do in the previous passage that we looked at last time. He was going to look for a way to put him to death. Church, this ought never ever be us and we should never desire this for anyone. But we must humble ourselves to worship Jesus. And that's the problem, isn't it? We, of ourselves, can't save ourselves from our worshiping other masters, from worshiping false gods. That's what got us into, the mess, into this mess in the first place, unbelief and pride. Eve saw that the, tree looked, the fruit of the tree looked good and she listened to the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of God because she thought she knew better. We are stuck in our sins unless someone acts. And that's the good news. Someone has acted. God himself has acted. And that's the good news for you and me every single day of our lives because with the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, we are given choices of who and what we are going to worship. Is it going to be the Lord Jesus Christ? And by the, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it can be. Jesus has already come to this family and showed them grace by raising Lazarus. And what he was telling them and us through raising Lazarus is that he himself is the worshipful offering, the lavish worship to God to rescue us from sin, from the penalty due us for our sin, death. We must be us to worship Jesus. We must humble ourselves to worship Jesus and ultimately, we must have Jesus to worship Jesus. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Why must we have Jesus to worship Jesus? Well, first, he determines what worship is acceptable. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone, Judas. 
Jesus defends her worship. He does not rebuke her because the object and focus of her worship is Jesus and Jesus alone. On the one hand, we should reject Judas's question outright. His question about why couldn't this have been sold was done from a spirit was done from a spirit of evil and has no basis. But let's, for the sake of argument, let's say that he asked it in genuine curiosity. Let's say he was faithful with the money bag. Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That's a lot of money that could help a lot of people. Answer? Again, Jesus is not to be pitted against the poor, nor the poor to be pitted against Jesus or seen as superior to Jesus. If God in the flesh had wanted to stop Mary from pouring out the ointment on himself, he would have rebuked Mary. But he rebukes Judas. The point is not necessarily where the sacrifice of worship goes. Jesus is really, really, really okay with compassion and generosity to the poor. It's all over the Bible. And devotion and worship to himself is all over the Bible too. The point's not necessarily uh, where the sacrifice of worship goes, but the heart behind it. Do we give to help the poor in Christ's name or our own? Do we pour out rich oil to worship Christ? Or do we do it in order to avoid having to get our hands dirty with the poor, as our Lord did? He determines what worship is acceptable. Secondly, he dies for worship to be possible. Leave her alone, Judas, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. What does that mean? Well, we'll unpack this a little bit, but the first thing we need to do is state the obvious. No one needs burial if they're not going to die. Jesus is going to die. And in fact, it is his act of worship to his Father, his act of love toward us sinners, to die on a cross that makes worship possible. We have no hope of coming before a holy God Almighty unless there is a sacrifice that is sufficient and acceptable. And Jesus is that. He dies for worship to be possible. And because he makes it possible, thirdly, he gives us the opportunity to worship so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's ask again, what does this mean? Keep it for the day of my burial. She didn't keep it for his burial. What is going on here? Well, (laughs) brilliant minds across the history have really debated about how this could be translated. It could mean that her act is often tied with Jesus' death as, as a memorial wherever the gospel is preached. The story of this woman will be told also. What is likely meant here, however, is that she had been intending to keep this for, her, for Jesus' burial and use it then, but she used it now. Why? 
she saw the opportunity to worship and worshiped with it. She knew that Jesus was going to die, but she took the opportunity when she saw it. Do we take the opportunity to worship when it comes our way? Maybe you are like me. Sometimes opportunity to worship comes my way and I hem and haw and make all sorts of excuses as to why it'd be a better time. It'd be more convenient. It wouldn't be so sacrificial if I could do it then. But the truth is, then never comes. He gives us opportunity to worship. Do we take it? And there's another question for us in this text, because Jesus says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus told Judas and those around him that they would not always have him. Is that true for us today? Well, in one sense, it is true. Because Jesus is not physically here. He's in heaven, interceding for us. He's preparing a place for us. He is away from us, and we cannot quite worship him the same way Mary did. But we can worship him in a way that Mary, before Jesus' crucifixion, really could not. You see, we have been, by faith, given the Holy Spirit of Christ and can worship Christ in spirit and truth now. All the time. Because of his salvation, we will always have him and we will never lose him. And because we always have him, we can both generously lift up the poor in the name of and by the Spirit of God in Christ, and we can devote our lives, our time to Jesus to worship him in a variety of ways as he has gifted the church by that same Holy Spirit. We must have Jesus to worship Jesus as Jesus is worthy of lavish worship. So you recall the letter that I read to you earlier. Anonymous. This person may never know how this side of eternity, how their worship of Jesus was used to help others worship Jesus. What's amazing is that I use the gift that they gave me every, almost every single day of my life to worship Jesus and to help you and to help others to equip others to worship Jesus. And as we come to the end of 2020, let me ask us a question. I want you to ask it in your hearts. What has God done for you? How has he blessed you to worship him? He's already accomplished salvation, bringing salvation And as Denton mentioned at the beginning, in the midst of a rough year, God didn't stop being God. 
He didn't cease to work. He didn't cease to reign over all. He has been sanctifying us who believe. He has been bringing to faith many who haven't believed. We as a church got to worship Jesus this, past, this year in His Word, hearing His voice. Some of you have never read through the New Testament all the way. Some of you did. Some of you are. We got to worship Jesus through communion, through participating together as a family at the Lord's table. We got to worship Jesus through prayer. We have to worship Jesus through benevolent giving. We have to worship Jesus through discussions of what we're doing, who we are, and where we're, what we're here for. We dedicated babies to the Lord. We saw one young couple get married. We baptized a girl last week. What has God done? Way more than that. Even more than that. Is he worthy of our lavish worship? Jesus is worthy of our lavish worship. And here's another question. What is God going to do? Are we counting on him to do even more all the way up to his return? He is worthy of lavish worship. Jesus is worthy of lavish worship. 